0: Great, praise the Lord for that. Appreciate it so much. We today are going to be in First. Uh, I'm sorry, in Romans chapter 12. In Romans chapter 12, and uh, so grateful to uh, have you here with us today. And uh, I hope that we never again. We don't know our future, but I hope we never again have to live in a time when we can't gather. Amen. The Bible says that uh, we are to gather together, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, and so grateful that we can do that again. It's my life, it's my body, I'll do what I want with it. You ever heard those words before? Say yes, I've had kids. (laughs) Uh, We've heard that usually if we've had kids. But the truth is that it doesn't matter who we are, we are experts at claiming the deed on our body. Let me give you a couple of facts here. Every day, things that happen in your body. Every single day that you live, this happens in your body. Your heart beats 103,689 times. Your blood travels 168 million miles. You breathe 23,048 times. You eat three and a quarter pounds of food. If you're a teenager, you eat 18 pounds of food, but it depends on who you are. If you drink, 2.9 quarts of liquids. If you're a woman, you utter 20,000 words. If you're a man, only 7,000 words. Because we can't get a word in edgewise. Amen? That's why. You move 750 muscles. Your nails grow 0. 0.00046 of an inch. Your hair grows 0. 0.017 of an inch. You exercise 7,000,000. Brain cells, that happens every day in your body. Now let me ask you a question, honestly now, how much of that are you responsible for? Maybe some of the thoughts and some of the different things, but most of these things are just happening. Most of these things really go on without your knowledge. Listen, if we're going to be found faithful in our service to the Lord, at some point, we must relinquish the sentiment, it's my body. It's not our body. And I want to talk about that today. I want to preach to you today on hand over your body. Hand over your body. Let's look at our passage here, verse number 1 of Romans chapter 12. The Bible says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, (coughs) that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable (coughs) and perfect will of God. Father, I pray today that you would help us as we look to your word for answers and look to your word for instruction for our life and Then help us to be faithful to do it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hand over your body. Now up to this point in Romans, Paul has uh, discussed in chapter 1 through chapter 8, he's been talking about the principles of the gospel. And then in chapter 9 through chapter 11 he's talked about the problems of the gospel. Now he begins to deal with the practice of the gospel. This is his theme for the rest of the epistle of Romans. Now it's helping helpful for us to understand that belief is followed by behavior or it certainly should be. Doctrine is followed by deeds. It's a great thing to know the Bible and to know what it says and to get into the Bible and learn about what the Bible says, but we need to live it out in our daily lives. I want to look at these two verses today and see how the Christian is challenged and how the Christian is changed. Looking first of all how he is challenged. The challenge today here has to do with our body. This is vital for us in the practice if we want to live a victorious Christian life. Hey, it's great to know the truths of the first 11 chapters. And it's great to know all the principles of the gospel. Uh, Listen, if we understand the fact in chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, we've got to recognize that. We must understand that uh, so that we can really, as a baseline to, to all of our beliefs, we must realize and recognize our need. We have to realize our complete inadequacy and then Christ's answer to that need on the cross of Calvary. Uh, then we see here the body is a sacrifice. Now, God will not coerce you into presenting your body. That's a clear all throughout the Bible. It's not like the, the wild mustangs of yesteryear that would be uh, caught, chased down, and, and roped, and caught, and corralled, and then trained, and forced to obey their master. No, the Bible here says that God beseeches us. The word there is parakaleo. It means to call for, to beg, or entreat. God wants a voluntary sacrifice. He makes it clear that for the believer to present our bodies to God is the proper thing to do. Now, when you read your Bible, and you come across, there's a lot of little tricks and hints to help us as we study our Bible. One of the things that's helpful is if you see the word therefore in the Bible, to always look as to why, what it's there for. Now, there's a reason that therefore is therefore. And so we want to look at that. And if you see the word therefore here, uh, this verse, it links God's desire for the believer's body with all the mercies of God that he has been describing in chapter 1 through chapter 11. And so he's been describing all these wonderful truths of the gospel, and then he says, therefore, uh, because of all that God has done for us, then he links here the believer's body with that. Hey, God has saved us from the penalty of sin. Amen. Uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God has not only saved us from the penalty, but the power of sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. He has saved us from the destructive desires of our flesh. Romans chapter 1. Uh, he has poured on us his unmerited favor. We say that all throughout the first part of the book of Romans. We have the benefit of salvation. We have the promise of heaven because of his great mercy. And so Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, in light of all that he's done for us, I beseech you that you present your bodies. It's a proper thing to do. It's an automatic thing to do. It's the only thing in response to love so amazing and so divine." It's not only the proper thing to do, it's the practical thing to do. It is the translation of the truths and principles in Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 8 and putting them into practice like we see in Romans chapter 12 through Romans chapter 16. Look, it's all fine and good to have a great knowledge of theological truths, but you have to do something with it. There's a lot of people that know a lot about the Bible, and if you never live it, I don't want to do you any good. There's got to be a practical application to the Word of God. It's one of my desires from this pulpit that we always, always uh, not only give the truths of the Word of God, that we attach with it a practical application. I believe the Bible does that in itself if we just give it as it is. So we must do something with it. God wants us to live a holy life. Now get this, the link between knowledge and action is found in your presented body. So we've got the knowledge, first eight chapter of Romans, and we've got the action, last few chapter of Romans, and the difference, it's, it's found in your presented body. Now, as Christians, we're going to live on one of two levels. Uh, we can live lives that are sensual, or we can live lives that are spiritual. We're going to live in one of those two levels. A person who is ruled by the physical is sensual. To be sensual does not necessarily mean we live in depravity. I'm not talking about living in the depths of sin. It doesn't mean we have to be drug addicts or drunkards or uh, addicted to pornography or addicted to gambling or whatever the case might be. I'm just talking here about simply being ruled by the senses. I'm talking about people that are ruled by what they see, what they feel, what they hear, what they touch, what they smell. It is possible for a Christian to be sensual. One that will not work on the bus because it's too hot. Don't go to church uh, because too tired. Will not work VBS because the kids are too smelly. Whatever the case might be. We come up with all kinds of reasons about why we don't want to do the work of God. Being a sensual Christian is living your life on the lowest possible level. You don't want to be a sensual Christian. When your service is decided by what you feel or what is easy. When I was growing up, after we got saved, after we were in church, in our house, the question was never asked, are we going to church today? Never. It wasn't asked on Sunday morning, it wasn't asked on Sunday night, it wasn't asked on Wednesday night. Uh, we knew we were going to go to church. If the doors were open, we were there. I think sometimes we just drove by the church just to make sure nothing was going on there. You know, if somebody was cleaning, we'd show up. <laughs> but no, I mean, it was, uh, it was set in stone, and it didn't matter Hey, Dad, I don't feel good today. Got to go to church anyway. Remember, my mom's deciding factor was if you throw up, if you're sick enough. Mom, I feel sick today. Did you throw up? No. Then you're not sick enough. Let's get up and go to church. Or, Mom, I feel really sick today. Did you throw up? Yes, I did. Good. Now, don't you feel better? Now, let's go up and get to go to church. That's just how it was. It doesn't matter how you feel. No matter how uh, tired you were, we did. And so, as a Christian, let's not be ruled by our senses, not be sensual. A person who is ruled by the Holy Spirit is spiritual. The key to this lies in the surrender of your body. Uh, This includes your will, your impulses. The Holy Spirit, if he has control of your body, then can control the whole man. Let me ask you a question today. And this is a question throughout this message. Are you willing to hand over your body to God for him to uh, fill and use as he sees fit? The body is a sacrifice. It's also an unblemished sacrifice. When the Holy Spirit has control of the body, you will begin to evidence the fruits of Christ. The offering of the body as a living sacrifice is different than the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Notice the wording here. To give the, your, present your bodies uh, the, a living sacrifice. In the Old Testament, when an animal was sacrificed, it was dead. Amen? I mean, that's the, that was a sacrifice. Here, when the believer offers his body, it's all about living. By the way, that's when living really begins when we offer our body to Jesus Christ. Let him rule and reign in our lives. Presenting your bodies. This is interesting. Because it means that God's interested in you, not just what you can do for him. A lot of people, sadly, church members, churchgoers, will do all kinds of work for God and never give Him their body. never give Him themselves. Hey, God's interested in your gifts, but He's more interested in you." I love the verse Paul wrote when he wrote in his letter, "I seek not you, I seek you, not yours." I love that verse. Seek you, not yours. Not after what you can do for me. I want you. And that's what God wants. The body as an unbiased sacrifice. Paul says that this sacrifice is a reasonable service. There's no coercion here. There's no high force. Listen, God never forces you to do anything. He never coerces you. Uh, There's no forcing of the will. The text assumes here that we are reasonable people. That's who he's written to. This is written to reasonable people and that the reasonableness of this demand will be evident. It's a reasonable service. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Whether the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small, love so amazing, so divine, shall have my heart My life, my all, not only shall it have it, it demands our heart, our life, and all because of what he's done for us. And that's it. In a nutshell, beseeched by the mercies of God, we submit to the logic of Calvary. We present our whole being to the Lord. God asks for nothing more and nothing less. This is how the Christian is challenged. Let's look at how he is changed. How are we changed in our Christian life. Now, the presentation of the body, what well, it says here, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. The presentation of the body results in a transformed life. The body of the believer is the vehicle in which the new nature is expressed. It's how the Holy Spirit expresses himself through us. It's through the body. I mean, that's all we have here on earth. We don't have any other, we don't really have any other way of expressing ourselves except through our body. And that's how the Holy Spirit works. And so we do not cultivate the body like the ancient Greeks did. Uh, They made, uh, uh, they, they worshiped the body basically for its beauty and strength. They made wonderful sculptures of the human body. They had the Greek games where they deified the people that, uh, that uh, competed in those games. They celebrated the body. But, and we also do not crucify the body. Like the, the folks are called aesthetics who do that, who starve and mutilate their own body. I'm talking about people who punish themselves, whipping themselves often. Rolando Ocampo from San Pedro, Philippines has been crucified every year since 1990, hoping to gain some favor from God. There's Hindus who walk for years on their knees, sometimes not even being able to stand anymore because of all the time they spent on their knees. That's not what God asks of us. We don't crucify the body or cultivate the body. We consecrate the body. Uh, We We allow him to have control over all of our actions and all of our deeds. The believer who presents his body, hey, listen, friend, is changed, is transformed. You let God have your body, and it'll transform you. He is changed morally. The Bible says, be not conformed to this world in this verse here, verse 2. The focus is here on that which is external. Don't be fashioned By the world. Another way of putting it is don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. The world is not morally neutral. Can I say that again? The world is not morally neutral. The world is a wicked place. It actively works against our Christian faith. We are not like the people around us, unsaved, and we should not act like them we must not try so hard to fit in to the society around us that we no longer think and act like a Christian. But what does this mean? We look at this command, which is entirely negative, be not conformed to this world. Sometimes we can get the wrong idea. We might, from this, make a list of rules uh, that will separate us from regular society. In the past, uh, preachers have applied this verse to the big four sins: drinking, smoking, dancing, playing cards, and you hear all the preaching against those in, in years past, or whatever pet sins that a preacher might have now i 'm not making an argument to condone any of those things, but sometimes our lists of don'ts in the Christian life will, will, will make a, basically will define us as a Christian by what we don 't do, and that 's not the Purpose of Christianity. Christianity cannot be reduced to a set of rules. In fact, that's religion. That's exactly what religion is, is a list of rules. And a whole list of I will nots or I do," uh, "I don'ts or not involved in this. We need to have standards. I'm 100% for standards. I believe in having strong standards for our families. But that's not what this verse is confined to when it says be not conformed to this world. Second fallacy is we might think Christians ought to have nothing to do with the world at all. Now, I don't believe this for a minute. We're not to regulate ourselves to a monastery somewhere, or go out way out in the wilderness and build a cabin and never see anybody, or go find a cave in some mountain somewhere and just live as a hermit. That's not what God has in plan for us. Whatever not being conformed to the world means, it can't be a call to run and hide as a Christian. So if we're not talking about seclusion, what is Paul talking about? When he says, be not conformed to this world. Well, in answer, I'd like to look at two words in that uh, phrase here. Let's look at all, first of all, the world. Now, the world that's mentioned, when he says, be not conformed to this world, this is not talking about the third walk from the sun, our planet Earth that we live on. Uh, Paul (coughs) is not saying here, that we do not enjoy the creation that God has made, the sunset, the stars, the sunrise. My, oh my, doesn't South Dakota have the most beautiful sunsets in the world? Amen? Love it. And uh, it's not a call that we can't enjoy those things. He does not say, don't enjoy life. Listen, if you look at the life of Paul, he utilized the culture of his day. Uh, He focused on the major cities in his ministry. Uh, Jerusalem, Antioch, Corinth, Athens, Rome, went to these different places. In 1 Timothy 4.4, he tells Timothy, For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. Paul in his day knew Greek, Aramaic. He knew uh, Latin, Aramaic, I'm sorry. He knew Latin and Hebrew. He read the secular poets And he quoted them in his preaching. In fact, he was so well-versed in the culture of his day that he could debate pagan philosophers on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17. So what's Paul warning us against? In the Bible, the New Testament specifically, there are two words used for the word world. There are two words that are translated the word world. The first is cosmos, and that basically means what you see the world around us. Uh, this, is, uh, this is verses used in Matthew 16, 26, for what is a man profited when he gained the whole world and lose his own soul. World, cosmos, that's everything that we see. In other words, uh, Jesus says it wouldn't profit you in a bit if you got everything, in the, all the riches and the wealth in the world that we see, cosmos. That's not the word that's used in this verse. Here the word is I own. It means a period of time or an age. Ryrie defines it as an organized system headed by Satan that leaves God out. That's a great description of our world today. There is an organized system. It is headed by Satan, who Jesus called the prince and the power of the air. He deliberately leaves God out. Christians must not love that world's system. First John will talk about that a lot. We're not to love the world. Here's the challenge of Romans chapter 12, verse 2. We live in this present age, don't we? Nothing we can do about it. Here's where we live. But this present age will not last forever. Eternity is long, our lives are short. So we ought to live our daily lives in light of eternity. So, in other words, we must live in this present age but this present age oughtn't live in us. We ought to live by a different set of values than the world around us. That's the world. Then look at conform is the other word I'd like to look at. The word conform is a Greek word. It's a long, hard to say word, so I'm just going to skip pronouncing it, but it's where we get the English word scheme from. It has the idea of a trap. Since the devil is the God of this world, 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, then we can assume that he will attack us from every angle. The traps that he sets are designed to get us to think like the world around us, to change our way of thinking to the world's way of thinking. The word also means to fashion oneself according to. Now, why does Paul tell us not to follow the fashions of the world? We're not to think or fashion ourselves according to the schemes of this age. It's essentially what he's telling us there. The present world must not live in us. Well, for the Christian, the reason is obvious. You see, the essence, and don't miss this, the essence of worldliness is to live as if, as if this age will last forever. The essence of worldliness is to live like this is all there is. This is it. Nothing more to look forward to. True worldliness acts as if this world is all that will ever be. And if that's the case, hey, friend, live it up if that's the case. If this world is all we'll ever know, why shouldn't you do what feels good? Why shouldn't you do whatever you want to do? Why shouldn't you satisfy every whim of your flesh? Do what makes you happy in the moment. That's worldliness. Worldliness is living as if tomorrow will never come. And that's okay if this is all there is. Living like that makes sense if tomorrow never comes. But if you think there's a better world coming, if you believe in eternity, if you believe in heaven, if you think that there is a home in heaven that awaits you, then live today in light of eternity. We ought not be conformed to this world because that's not all there is. We ought to be transformed in our thinking, which is exactly what happened as we get into the Word of God. The Bible says in Matthew six nineteen, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. Listen, the world has its fads, its fashions, and they change with every generation. When I was a teenager, it was stonewashed jeans and pegged pants. Remember those days? Before that, bell bottoms and platform shoes. I'm grateful I wasn't born earlier. <laughs> Amen. I remember when I was a teenager, I promised myself, I had a talk with myself. I remember this specifically. I had a little talk with myself one day after I had a discussion with my parents. And they were wrong about it and clothing stuff. And I had a talk with myself. I said, when I have kids of my own, I will be understanding of the day's fashions. I'm not going to fight them on it. I mean, I'm not talking about sin, but I won't resist things just because they're new. And then skinny jeans came along. Need we say any more after that? But the world, it's mold. It puts pressure on us. The world wants us to fit in. Not only in our dress, but in our diet. I remember when coffee was bad and bread was good. Now, coffee's good and bread is bad, and it just changes all the time, doesn't it? And it's not only matters of dress and diet. It affects us in our serious areas of our life, morals, ethical standards, faith. All those things are affected. Listen, there was a time that no church, no church would accept homosexuality as acceptable behavior. Now you've got preachers, ministers that are openly homosexual and just churches accept them in. This this is what's called conforming to the world. We don't conform to the world's way of thinking if we're going to live for God. The world is human life and society with God left out. It is the devil's lair for sinners and lure for saints. He wants us to Be lured into the world's way of thinking. The believer whose body has been laid on the altar for God will not be conformed to the world. See, it works together. You've already, in verse 1, given your body as a living sacrifice to the Lord. And so you cannot be conformed to the world because your body has already been given to the Lord. Be transformed, he says. We're morally changed. Our lives are not molded from without or they shouldn't be. They should be molded from within the Holy Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus used an object lesson to drive this point home. He pointed in uh, Matthew 6, 29. He pointed to the lilies of the field. And he says, Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed as one of these. That's interesting because Solomon's finery, everything that he had, he, that was put on, from the outside. Uh, it was the But the glory of the lily grows from within. That's what Jesus was trying to show here. As a Christian, our inward power to overcome the pressures of the world, hey, that comes from the Holy Spirit. And it comes from inward. It's not an outward thing. It's because that power isn't in and of ourselves. Have you ever tried to defeat an addiction by yourself? you ever tried to overcome a major sin in your life by yourself? It's impossible to really overcome that without being empowered by the Holy Spirit. We're not to be molded by the world's morals. We're to set the standard for the world. Amen? That is uh, us being changed morally. Not only are we changed morally, we're changed mentally. Look what the Bible says. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is a call for a transformed life. Now, the Greek word translated transformed in this passage is found in only three other places in the New Testament. Two of them are found to describe the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 17, verse 2, and in Mark chapter 9, verse 2, this word transformed is used to describe uh, Jesus at the transfiguration. Uh, The word is metamorpho. You probably recognize that because it's where we get our word metamorphosis from. To change into another form is what transformed means. Now, the best example we have is the butterfly. I don't know if you've ever seen this happen, maybe on television, or you've seen it on a video of some sort, or maybe you've seen it in real life, but the creature that enters the cocoon is ugly. There's nothing good to look at about a caterpillar, slimy, sometimes furry. Nobody nobody looks at a caterpillar and says, wow, look how beautiful. Nobody does that. He enters the cocoon, and he's an ugly, unsightly creature. But he emerges beautiful. Why? Because there was a metamorphosis that happened in there. He is now, miss this, he's now unrecognizable for what he was. Because he's been metamorphosized, if that's a word. It's a beautiful butterfly. This is what the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life. He wants to change you. He wants to move you from what you were into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, Romans 8.28 makes it clear that to do that, he sometimes brings negative things into your life. I, I, I'm sure you've all heard the story, so I, I won't even use, i thought about using it as an illustration, but this is one that's been overdone. But you know the story about the boy who wanted to help the butterfly out of the cocoon? And so he cut it open very carefully to help it out, and it died because it needed the struggle to become what it was? That's what, all of us need that. Uh, to, be, to me, to be metamorphosized, <laughs> if that's not a word, it is now. I just made it up, amen? George Bush can do it, I can do it. So, Uh, to be metamorphosized, uh, sometimes it takes struggle. Sometimes it takes uh, trials in our life. But for him to change you, friend, you've got to be willing to hand over your body. He's got to have you. I think of two illustrations in Scripture. Moses came down from the mountain after spending 40 days and 40 nights alone with God. Remember what happened? He came down, and the Bible says in Exodus 34, 29, he wist not that the skin of his face shone. He glowed. Can you imagine that? Somebody's face glowed. The, then Stephen, in the New Testament, when he was filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, faced the Sanhedrin, and the Bible says in Acts 6:15, they, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Doesn't tell us more than that, but I have to think that he also had a glow about him. Now, I don't expect that all of our faces ought to glow. Uh, Our Christianity, though, I believe should affect our face. Don't you agree? Listen, as God's people, we shouldn't walk around faces dragging, complaining all the time, acting like our mother-in-law moved in, acting like we're drinking pickle juice and vinegar all the time, and sour and mopey. We oughtn't be like that as God's people. We ought to be... Happy, we ought to, by the way, your face, did you know, is the index to the soul? That's all I can see. Uh, I look at your face, and that's all I have, really, to determine whether you're pleasant, whether you're having a good day, whether you're having a bad day, Uh, what I'm about to expect with our conversation. That's all we have, is the face. And so that ought to uh, be a testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, one time, was asked to appoint a man to a high post in his government. And this was his response. Abraham Lincoln, I don't like his face. You ever thought that about anybody? To be honest. Nobody in here, I'm sure. But you've thought about that. I don't like his face. I don't like her face. That's what Abraham Lincoln said. And the person that was trying to get this person instituted in the government responded, said, but surely the man isn't responsible for his face. Abraham Lincoln said, every man over 40 is responsible for his face. That's profound. That's profound. Now listen, the Holy Spirit does not just put makeup on your face. Does not just put paint on the outside. The Holy Spirit works from within. He renews your mind. He transforms the soul. And he transforms you if you let him, but you've got to give him your body. Got to give him your life. Got to give him your all. You're changed morally, you're changed mentally. He's also changed the Christian is motivationally. Look what the Bible says here, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Every Christian is responsible for finding the will of God in his life. Now, if you've taken discipleship, you'll know how to do that. If you haven't, take discipleship and we'll talk about it there, all right? There's a good way for us to find God's will in our life. Can I give you a great truth this morning? God's will is Good, the Bible says so, that you may approve what is that good will of God. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know my thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you an expected end. Can I tell you this morning, now this is hard for us to recognize sometimes in our life, God never requires anything of you that is not for your eternal good. Ooh, think about that now. It may not seem so at the time. It might contradict your immediate desires. It may conflict with your opinions. Think about Peter, Acts chapter 10. Jesus said, Peter, I need you to go witness to Cornelius. Only one problem Cornelius was a Gentile. This wasn't done. This just wasn't done. You didn't go to Gentiles and give them the gospel. So this went against everything that Peter believed. And you know the story about the sheets coming down and, and Jesus or, or God had him eat unclean meat or so-called unclean meat. What God had called clean shall no man call unclean. And he sent him to the Gentiles. By the way, I'm glad the gospel went to the Gentiles, aren't you? Because I am one. And we'll praise the Lord for that. But it contradicted all of Peter's preconceived notions. But I say again, what God plans for you, will be the very best that his omniscient wisdom and love can conceive for you. Think about that. What a truth that is. That's good stuff. Joseph went through years of tremendous trial and heartache, and he was in jail. He was unfairly accused, and he was sold into slavery by his brothers, and for years he rotted in jail. He was forgotten by everyone until he was promoted. And you know what his testimony was at, his, at the end of his life? Genesis 50 verse 20. God meant it unto good. Can I tell you? God's will is good. It's always good. We don't understand it, but it's always good. Just took Joseph a while to see it. When the clouds of uncertainty finally rolled away and he's able to look back clearly upon his life, uh, he saw it. God's will was good. It is Satan who suggests in our life that God can't be trusted. It's Satan who implies that God keeps good things from us. He did it with Eve, he'll do it with you. But God's will is good. Then also the Bible says it's acceptable. God's will is acceptable. God will not ask us to do anything that we cannot accept. It seems like it sometimes, but it's acceptable. He leads us along the path of life. He matures us as we go. This was Israel's experience, by the way. If you look at a map, you'll see that when the nation of Israel left Egypt, the shortest route to Canaan lay due south. But God did not, I'm sorry, it was due east, the shortest route to Canaan. But God led them due south along the Sinai Peninsula. He brought experience after experience, unpleasant things, hard trials into their life so that they would learn to trust him. The longest way around turned out to be the shortest way home. Think about that. Sometimes that's true in our life. Why? Because what awaited them in Canaan was a bunch of giants. Remember the detail? They had to go in and they saw giants. It was a land flowing milk and honey, but there's giants there. And so what they needed was to face some trials in life. They needed to face some setbacks just like you do you need to go through life and face trials and hardship and setbacks so when you come to your Canaan and its giants, you're ready for them. Israel needed to be prepared for it. It took a while to get there. We find the same in Abraham's life. Acceptable. I'm talking about God's will being acceptable. Even when it seems humanly impossible. If you go over to Genesis chapter 22, you'll see the, most, the hardest command probably in Scripture. Uh, Abraham had one son. He waited for years for this son. He loved his son. His son was going to be the way that he would become a great and mighty nation. And God says, I want you to take your son, whom thou lovest, take him out to Mount Moriah, and I need you to sacrifice him there. Whew. How hard would that be to obey, huh? Abraham, though, it's as hard for us to get, but Abraham considered the will of God to be acceptable. Bible says he got up early the next morning, threw some things on some donkeys, and said, Isaac, let's go. And here they headed off to the mountain where God had told him. Now, he did not know why God demanded the sacrifice. He did not understand how God would honor his promise for the covenant. Bible says he expected that he would raise Isaac from the dead. He didn't know how God would do it, but he accepted God's will without question. Now, you say, how in the world could somebody like Abraham? do that? Well, if you remember, at the beginning of the pilgrimage of Abraham, God told Abraham to surrender or to sacrifice his father, leave his home. Never see them again. So he was called to surrender his father. At the end of his pilgrimage, God calls him to surrender his son. Now obviously it's a lot harder to surrender your son than it would be to surrender your father probably, but between these two surrenders, were years and years of maturing and testing and growth in Abraham's life. I'm talking about preparation. And that's what we've, we've got to look at the hardships of life. It's preparation. God's preparing you for something. It's not just an accident. His will is always acceptable. First John 5.3 says that God always sees to it that His commandments are not grievous. Let's, can I make a statement today and, and let this sink into your mind? If God's will seems unacceptable to you, you are blindly overlooking something. Now, you might not see it for years. Joseph didn't. But if God's will seems unacceptable, there's something we don't know that God does. You know what it all comes down to? Trust. Trust. I don't fly too often. I don't mind flying. I'm not scared of fly. My wife hates flying, but I don't mind flying that much. and we'll I'll go into a, on a plane. and I, I was sitting there, one of the recent flights that I took, and I'm sitting in the back, and I got to thinking, man, here I am putting my, my whole faith and trust, my body, into the hands of a man that I've never met before. He's up in the pi- I've never seen him. I don't know who he is, don't know his name, don't know how old he is. He's some nameless guy up in the cockpit, and I'm putting all my faith and trust in him. You say, I can't trust God with my body. You do it all the time. We trust people with our body. Why not trust God with it? We have a hard time trusting him because it's, uh, it's just not in our human nature to do so. But God never asks us to take a step for which we are not ready. His will is acceptable. Those people, and you, if you're one of them, who have presented their bodies a living sacrifice, will see this borne out in their life over and over again. God's will is acceptable. Sometimes we don't see it on the day of, but we'll see it later looking back. And then finally, verse 2 tells us that God's will is perfect. It's perfect. No, nope. Can I tell you today, no plan of yours can improve on God's plan. I used to tell this to teenagers all the time when I was a youth pastor. I would beg with them because I remember as a teenager, I, I mapped out my life often. I would think about my future and my marriage and my two kids that I would have, and, and I just thought about how everything would, it was all planned out. I mapped out my life. And, and uh, thankfully, when I was 16 years old, I went forward at a conference and I gave my heart and life to Christ and said, whatever you want from me, God, that's, it's yours. You can have my body. And I didn't always submit as I should have, but I tried my best to give God control of my life. And can I tell you today, if you're a young person in here, if you're an adult in here, God can do better with your life than you can. Oh, I've seen it over and over and over. I couldn't have dreamed all that God has done through my life. Let him have it. It takes a little trust. It's hard for us, humanly speaking, to hand over our body. Say, preacher, if I hand over my body, then I can't do such and such anymore. That's probably right. I can't go here anymore. That's probably right. I can't hang around with this person. That's probably right. Trust God. Hand over your body. Just hand it over. Let him have it. Let him control you. You see, we only see bits and pieces of our life. We only see the present and the past. In fact, we see shaded visions of the past sometimes because we don't remember things clearly always. God sees everything. We measure things by the narrow horizon of our present vision. God sees your past. He sees your present. He sees your future. He sees it compared to eternity. He weighs all the actions and controls all the circumstances His will is perfect. Trust Him. Trust Him. You can, without hesitation today, friend, hand over your body. You don't have to worry. God, it's not going to hurt you. It's going to help you if you turn over your body to God. Lord, if you tell me through your word or through the preaching of your word, if you tell me I'm not to do so and so, I won't do it. If I see something in the Bible that I'm not doing and it says to do, I'm going to do it. Just hand over your body. It's not that hard. It's not that difficult to just do what the Bible says and let God control you. you can, he can do more and will do more for you than you can ever conceive of yourself. I don't know where you are this morning, friend. I don't know to what extent that you have presented your body. Maybe you haven't at all. I don't know where you are in the, in the journey of, of transformation and being renewed <coughs> in, in your mind. Maybe you have... Too much allowed the world to conform you into its image. Today, settle that with the Lord. As we're going to have every head bowed, every eye closed. While the pianos come forward and give you an opportunity uh, to respond to the word this morning. Listen, I don't know how God is...